Well, thank you uh, for coming, everyone. I think the number of people here uh, surely indicates the fame and influence of Richard Dawkins uh, rather than of uh, myself. Uh, but I hope I can give you some uh, useful thoughts in the time that we have. Uh, a sceptical guide to the thinking of Richard Dawkins. Uh, you can also look at this as a primer in critical thinking. Or, uh, as I've put a, a sub-subtitle there, uh, Six Logical Fallacies, Bad Ways of Arguing, illustrated from the works of Richard Dawkins. If you don't know, Professor Richard Dawkins, FRS, Fellow of the Royal Society, FRSL, fellow, uh, fellow for the Royal Society of Literature, is a so-called neo or new atheist. He's a zoologist. He's emeritus professor at a new college of Oxford University. Uh, he was the University of Oxford's first ever professor for the public understanding of science between 1995 and 2008. Uh, he came to prominence uh, publicly through his popular science books, uh, such as The Blind Watchmaker from 1986 and uh, Climbing Mount Improbable, uh, from 1996, which we'll mention later. But it was his anti-theistic polemic, The God Delusion, 2006, and recently published in an updated edition with sort of expansions at the beginning in the back uh, in 2016. That book has sold over three million copies. Uh, so that has made him very well known and a very influential uh, a voice in people's thinking these days about the God question. And he recently published a new book aimed at a young adult audience called Outgrowing God. Uh, and my project at the moment is to write a book directly responding to Outgrowing God. Uh, I've got to hand it in to my publisher at Easter, so I'm, I'm busily working away at that at the moment. Dawkins appears to endorse an open-minded, evidence-led search for the truth. So he will say things like this. Did Jesus come alive again three days after being crucified? There is an answer to every such question, whether or not we can discover it in practice. And it's a strictly scientific answer. But to be genuine, uh, an investigation of such claims must include a commitment to following the evidence, even if that entails changing your worldview on the basis of the evidence. Unfortunately, Dawkins rejects such an evidence-led inquiry on what philosophers call a priori, or non-evidential, before experience uh, grounds. So he says this in his uh, children's book, The Myth of uh, the Magic of Reality. He says, suppose something happens that we don't understand and we can't see how it could be fraud or, or trickery or lies. Would it ever be right to conclude that it must be supernatural, must be a miracle? No. That would be lazy, even dishonest. For it amounts to a claim that no natural explanation will ever be possible. If you claim that anything odd must be supernatural, 
You're not just saying you don't currently understand it. You're giving up and saying that it can never be understood. There are things that not even the best scientists of today can explain, but that doesn't mean we should block off all investigation by resorting to phony explanations invoking magic or the supernatural or miracles which don't actually explain at all. But the conclusion that a given event was a miracle, well, that naturally amounts to the claim that no true naturalistic explanation of the event is possible. But one might as well accuse naturalistic explanations of blocking off further discussion or investigation. I mean, there's a sense in which any explanation brings inquiry to an end. I mean, that's what explanations are kind of for, isn't it? Dawkins here begs the question against miracles. He, he deduces their status as pure fiction from his naturalistic presuppositions. He does that without any regard for what the evidence might say. And in light of Dawkins' statements about, say, the resurrection of Jesus being a strictly scientific question, this is what philosophers call holding a double standard. Let's look at the question, the issue I guess Dawkins is most famous for talking about and has talked about publicly for the longest time, what we might call the organic design argument. We assign the burden of proof, who has to argue for something, with what British philosopher Richard Swinburne calls the principle of credulity, the principle of when to trust something. Swinburne says it's a basic principle of knowledge, which he calls the principle of credulity, that we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be until we have sufficient evidence that we're mistaken. And Swinburne points out that if we, we didn't do that and tried to do the reverse, then basically we'd hardly ever believe anything because we'd always need evidence for the evidence for the evidence and so on ad infinitum. In other words, if it looks like a duck, reckon it's a duck until you've got reason for doubt. Well, Dawkins famously says at the beginning of The Blind Watchmaker that biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. So we have here a very intuitive design argument that we could put like this. One, the principle of credulity. We ought to believe that things are as they seem to be as they appear to us to be, until we have evidence that we're mistaken. But two, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose, from which it follows that three, therefore, we ought to believe that biology is the study of things that were designed for a purpose, until and unless we have sufficient evidence that we're wrong, that we're mistaken about that. 
Going a little deeper into this question of design, here's Dawkins speaking about uh, what's called specified complexity, and I'll illustrate this concept in a few different ways for you. Dawkins says that you and I and every other living creature are machines of ineffable complexity, complexity of a magnitude to challenge credulity. But as a philosopher, I appreciate the fact that he takes the time to really define what he means by complexity here. And, it, and it's deeper than you might think just from the standard definition of the term. So he says complexity here means statistical improbability in a non-random direction. Statistical improbability in a non-random direction, the direction of seeming designed for a purpose. Actually, Dawkins, in several places, uh, implicitly and explicitly acknowledges that specified complexity is a plausible indicator or test for design. So in an article in Free Inquiry magazine, Dawkins says that specified complexity takes care of the sensible point that in the unique disposition or arrangement of its parts, a pile of detached watch parts tossed around in a box is as improbable, as complex in the standard meaning of the term, as a fully functioning, what he calls genuinely complicated watch. He says what is specified about a watch, the arrangement of those parts that is a watch, what's specified about that is that it is improbable in the specific direction of telling the time, of achieving this function of telling the time. Whereas all the other equally statistically improbable arrangements of parts wouldn't do that, or at least most of them wouldn't do that. In The Blind Watchmaker, again, he has this illustration of uh, finding an unlocked safe. He says, of all the equally improbable positions of the combination lock, that's complexity, only one opens the lock, that's a specification. And Dawkins argues that the best explanation of an open safe is that someone knew the specific and complex combination, that it's open by design and not for any other reason, such as luck. So here is what we might call Dawkins' design argument. Specified complexity is a reliable indicator of design. Nature contains specified complexity. Conclusion, therefore, nature contains a reliable indicator of design. And Dawkins affirms both premises of this logically valid argument. But of course he disagrees with the conclusion. And he does it through raising the issue of neo-Darwinism says the complexity, by which he means the specified complexity of living bodies, of all of its trillion cells, is so mind-shattering that there's a temptation, he says, to buckle at the knees, to succumb to a non-explanation, one of those supernatural explanations. It's almost overwhelming, that temptation, says Dawkins. But humanity's best estimate of the probability of divine creation dropped steeply in 1859 
when The Origin of Species was published, and it has declined steadily during the subsequent decades as evolution consolidated itself from a plausible theory in the 19th century to established fact today. But of course, evolution can mean many things, which I've put up here in what I take to be an order of from the most probable claims that tend to get labelled as that's what evolution means to what I think of as the least probable claims uh, that fall under that heading. And indeed, one can accept and reject evolution in different senses of the term. So personally, I'm minded to uh, reject the, the two concepts in red at the bottom here, uh, what Dawkins calls the blind watchmaker hypothesis and the naturalistic origins hypothesis. And we'll talk about both of these in more depth. But that doesn't mean I have to reject the other definitions of evolution, such as um, ancient earth or change over time or common ancestry, for example. Indeed, Charles Darwin's own theory of evolution by natural selection was the green concepts here. Darwin didn't uh, enter into the discussion of the two uh, concepts in black. So Dawkins says that Darwin patiently tells us exactly how the trick of life works, cumulative natural selection. Darwin, in The Origin of Species, I think reversed the proper burden of proof concerning design uh, to award the presumption of truth to his bold but risky extrapolation from what we might call observed microevolution to the concept of macroevolution, that that little process of random change and natural selection can account for everything complicated about life as we see it today. Now that grand extrapolation depends upon an unwarranted shift between saying that he saw no barrier to that extrapolation and saying that there was no barrier to that extrapolation. And that's a shift that constitutes an argument from ignorance. So here's a quote from The Origin of Species, 1859, that illustrates this philosophical move on Darwin's part. He says, if then we have under nature variability and a powerful agent always ready to act and to select, natural selection in other words, why should we doubt that variations in any way useful to beings would be preserved, accumulated and inherited? And what limit can be put to this power acting during long ages, favouring the good what works, and rejecting the bad, what doesn't work in the local circumstances. He says, I can see no limit to this power in slowly and beautifully adapting each form. So he basically gets you to abandon that, that presumption of design based on the common sense principle of, of when we trust things, principle of... Uh, uh, when to trust stuff that Richard Dawkins was talking about, uh, that which Swinburne was talking about, getting my Richards confused, uh, and to reverse that burden of proof. So Dawkins points out that the larger the leap through what he calls genetic space, 
the lower the probability that the resulting change will be viable, let alone an improvement. Hence, evolution, in this sense, must, in general, be a, a cruel, a gradual cruel through genetic space, not a, not a series of leaps from one functioning kind of thing to another vastly different functioning kind of thing, because that would just be too improbable. You have to break it down into a, a sufficiently probable series of little steps so that you get big change over a long period of time, right? Dawkins likens this gradual approach to attaining biological complexity to, and he gives this illustration, and it's the title of one of his books, to climbing Mount Improbable. He says the sheer cliff on one side of Mount Improbable could never be conquered in one go. But the backside of Mount Improbable is a series of individually attainable steps leading to the summit. And Dawkins asserts, claims, that although we've got no idea what gradual path organisms took up Mount Improbable, they must have done so. He says, however daunting the sheer cliffs that the adaptive mountain first presents, graded ramps can be found the other side and the peak eventually scaled. So how does Dawkins know that these graded gradual pathways up the back of Mount Improbable exist and can be found without having found them? He says, without stirring from our chair, we can see that it must be so. He's doing philosophy. Because nothing except gradual accumulation could, in principle, do the job. What job? The job of explaining life without mentioning design. Yeah? It's obvious that the gradual accumulation, natural selection, is not the only possible explanation, which therefore must be true, because Dawkins is here arguing for the blind watchmaker thesis as an alternative to the design temptation, to the design argument. So here Dawkins is clearly begging the question in favour of the macroevolutionary extrapolation and explanation against a design inference in those cases. He says there cannot have been intermediate stages in that series of steps and the pathway. There can't have been intermediate stages between here and here, amoeba and you, um, that were not beneficial. There's got to be a series of advantages all the way that can be selected. Uh, if you can't think of one, then that's your problem, not natural selection's problem. He's still pulling the same reversal of the burden of proof move. So says natural selection, well, I suppose that is a sort of matter of faith on my part, since the theory is so coherent and powerful. And of course, uh, we know from Dawkins' other writings that by faith, uh, he always takes that to mean blind faith. Uh, if you want to go into this at uh, much more depth than I can cover here, let me recommend the books by a biochemist called Michael Behe or uh, Douglas Axe. 
Stephen C. Meyer, uh, philosophy of uh, science graduate from Cambridge. Uh, that's what he did his doctorate in the philosophy of science in the uh, origins debate. He points out uh, the recent discovery of epigenetic, outside genetic information in organisms. He says the information in DNA is necessary but not sufficient, needed but not enough to build whole organisms. So DNA sequences can mutate indefinitely and still not produce new body plans, new types of animal. Consequently, the mechanism of natural selection acting on random mutations in DNA cannot, in principle, generate the epigenetic information that's necessary to build and produce a new body plan, a new type of creature. As atheists, Jerry Fodor and Massimo Patelli Palumarini, I probably slaughtered that in Italian, I'm sorry, um, say in their book, What Darwin Got Wrong, uh, as atheists, they argue, we don't know what the mechanism of evolution is. As far as we can make out, nobody knows exactly how phenotypes, different types of creature, evolve. So actually, Dawkins' appeal to a neo-Darwinist explanation for the variety and complexity, specified complexity within the organic realm, how phenotypes evolve, is a red herring. That is an irrelevant distraction from the actual issue. It doesn't actually address or cover the issue that needs to be covered. Concerning the origin of life able to undergo evolution, which is something you have to have in place before evolution in, in the, the neo-Darwinian sense can take place, Dawkins' appeal to natural selection is, of course, a red herring. You can't uh, explain the origin of things able to undergo evolution by pointing to the mechanisms of evolution. Uh, as the atheist philosopher of science Bradley Monton says, Darwinian evolution only comes into play once life already exists. Darwinian evolution doesn't explain or even purport to explain how life came to arise in the first place. Or as atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel says, the origin of life remains, at the moment, a mystery, an event to which no significant probability can be assigned on the basis of what we know of the laws of physics and chemistry. But there's another design issue that Dawkins talks about. Beyond the biological world around us, there are preconditions of even having a biological world that cosmologists talk about. Dawkins says the laws and constants of physics are fine-tuned in such a way as to set up the conditions under which peacocks and humans and so on can come into existence. Well, here, of course, when he talks about fine-tuned and in such a way as to, he is talking about complexity and specification, specified complexity. But he has a rejoinder to 
a design argument that one might want to make off the basis of that observation of fine-tuning. That is, the multiverse, the many universes hypothesis. He says, there are billions of universes having different laws and constants. Of course, we could only find ourselves in one of those, the minority of those universes whose laws and constants happen to uh, allow for our evolution. So basically, he's, he's saying that that fine-tuning that does hit this specification of permitting complex biological things to evolve, that fine-tuning, although it looks very, very unlikely, he's saying it's not actually unlikely enough to trigger a design inference because there are lots and lots of opportunities for universes to hit that life-permitting specification by chance. There are lots and lots of rolls of the dice happening. So actually, although the universe at first glance looks like it's finely tuned in a specified complex way, it's specified, but it's not really complex. Now, a lot could be said about the multiverse hypothesis, and we don't have a huge amount of time, so I'm not going to say that much apart from this. Scientific appeals to a multiverse are, in philosophical terms, again, question-begging. Because such appeals assume the existence of a finely tuned universe-generating mechanism. There has to be something scientifically describable that's producing all of these differently tuned universes so that one of them by chance has a sufficient statistical probability of hitting that life-permitting pattern uh, without triggering uh, a design inference. But, I mean, why, for example, isn't there a universe-generating mechanism that keeps producing, producing sort of photocopies, as it were, of the same life-prohibiting, non-life-permitting universe? Why does this mechanism produce differently tuned universes? Why is it even possible for one of the universes that it could produce to be a life-permitting type of universe? To make that happen, you have to end up fine-tuning your universe-generating mechanism. So all you've done is pushed the, the ruckle in the carpet along a bit. You haven't got rid of the ruckle in the carpet. So the agnostic uh, Paul Davis, in his book uh, The Goldilocks Enigma, Why is the Universe Just Right for Life, uh, as an agnostic cosmologist, and he admits that multiverse theories merely shift the problem up a level from the universe to the multiverse. There has to be a finely tuned universe-generating mechanism. The multiverse theory, he says, cannot provide a complete and final explanation of why our universe is fit for life. But at this point, Dawkins, again, resorts to philosophy. And he has a, a metaphysical objection to the design argument, to appealing to design to explain these things. He says, but think about it, you know, the designer that you appeal to, whatever that is, the designer himself 
in order to be capable of designing, would have to be another complex, I specified complex, entity of the kind that in his turn would need the same kind of explanation. And if he has the same kind of explanation, then that thing, you know, the thing that designed the designer would need a designer, and so on, and so on, and so on. Isn't that really a big problem with appealing to design? I don't think so. Here's why. Here's one line of defense that Dawkins gives to this metaphysical rebuttal. Uh, the design rebuttal defended by Dawkins version A. He says, look, if you're trying to explain something improbable, it can, it can never suffice, it's never enough to invoke an entity that is in itself at least as improbable. If you've got something improbable and you try and explain it by reference to something else that's improbable, then you haven't really made an advance because you'd have to explain that thing and so on and so on. But do we make an explanatory advance if we explain this complex self-portrait in terms of the existence of the far more complex Edvard Munch? I hope I've pronounced that correctly. You can come and correct me later if I haven't. Uh, it seems to me that knowing that this was produced by Munch is an explanatory advance, but clearly he contains much more specified complexity than even uh, his self-portrait does. So it, it seems that we can make explanatory advances worth making uh, by referencing things that are uh, exhibiting specified complexity. Well, Dawkins thinks he's arguing here that we should reject explanations that are more complex, or at least or more complex than the data that they explain. That's what he thinks he's doing. But of course, Dawkins is more complex than the words and the arguments that he's using here. So by his own rule of explanation, Dawkins shouldn't believe that he is arguing for his rule of explanation, that the explanation of the existence of these words coming out of his mouth is him. Because, of course, he is much more complicated than the words coming out of his mouth, right? And he says, you can never do that as an explanation. So this uh, defense of his metaphysical objection to the design inference is actually self-contradictory. And it doesn't get any worse in philosophy than self-contradiction. Uh, if your view is self-contradictory, it is wrong, full stop, game over. So he has a, a second line of defense, though. Maybe this will be more successful, the design rebuttal defended version B. He says, critics of my book tried to deny that a god capable of designing something complex specified complex, must himself be complex. Okay, but, you know, why think that God must be complex in that sense rather than simple? For, for thousands of years, theologians have discussed the complex uh, uh, issue, as it were, of God's simplicity, after all. 
Dawkins says, look, God has to be clever enough to calculate the exact values of those physical constants that would fine-tune the universe to permit life. Uh, you call that simple? God has enough bandwidth to listen to the prayers and the praises of billions of people simultaneously. The one thing God cannot be if he's to match up even minimally to his job description, is simple. Hmm. In a discussion hosted by the agnostic philosopher Sir Anthony Kenny, Kenny uh, was obviously getting a bit frustrated, I think, and he stepped into the conversation between Dawkins and uh, Archbishop uh, Rowan Williams here. And he made the point uh, of distinguishing, as philosophers like distinguishing between things, it's kind of our day job, um, he distinguished between what he called complexity of structure and complexity of function. Um, and knowing that he was talking to non-philosophers, like I am, usefully, he gave a nice, really nice illustration of this distinction, this difference. He said, look, an electric razor can only be used to cut your beard. But the cutthroat razor might also be used to, I don't know, cut a throat, or open a letter, or slice some ham, or, you know. So, Kenny's point is that you might demonstrate that something has a complexity of function, that something can do lots of different things. But that's not the same as showing that that thing has a complexity of structure. Arguing for one doesn't argue for the other. But of course, what Dawkins has done in terms of the argument about, about is God complex or simple is he's argued that God displays a great complexity of function. But that's irrelevant. What he needs to establish is that if there is a designer, that that designer would have to have a complexity of structure of the kind, of the specified complexity kind, that in turn would lead us to invoke further design explanations. And he hasn't done that. Dawkins' reply to Kenny was, I don't really see what you're saying. It's obvious. Well, as the atheist Thomas Nagel, again, says, to clarify this point, Kenny was pointing out that God, if there is a God, is not a complex physical inhabitant of the natural world. I, I have at home a set of fridge magnets that caught my eye, and I bought them online. Um, they're a uh, set of fridge magnets uh, which show pictures of bits of the way in which different religions of the world picture their concept of God. So you can, like, uh, take these fridge magnets and make, you know, the body of Krishna. Or um, you can uh, make a picture of Jesus. Or you can take the head of Krishna and put it on the body of Jesus. Or... You can kind of mix and match your own deity. It's as if Dawkins is thinking that if there is a deity, well, he's the kind of thing that might exhibit complex 
specificity. To be complex in that sense, something has to be improbable. Those are being used as synonymous terms to mean the same thing, complexity or improbability. But to be improbable, something has to be contingent, has to be the sort of thing that's possible to happen but doesn't have to happen, that's possible to exist but doesn't have to exist because it could be something else, and that's why it's unlikely that it's this rather than the other, right? But theists have traditionally thought of God as a being who, if he exists, exists necessarily, not as a contingent object or a contingent one improbable arrangement of bits out of all the possible arrangement of bits of God that you might rearrange, like rearranging fridge magnets of Krishna and Ganesh and Jesus. So as the atheist philosopher Eric Weilenberg, in an essay he's published uh, on the central argument of the, the God delusion that we're looking at here, he, he says, he concludes at the end of his article that the central atheistic argument of the God delusion is unconvincing. So must God be complex in that specified complexity sense rather than simple? None of Dawkins' observations is an argument showing that to fulfill his job description, God must be complex and not simple in the relevant sense of the term. Dawkins equivocates, switches between meanings over the terms complex and simple in order to beg the question against God being, maybe, a simple necessary being. Or think of it this way, his, his famous book was called The God Delusion, but if he'd called it The Created God Delusion, or The Contingent God Delusion, it probably wouldn't have sold as many copies. There aren't very many theists who believe in a created or contingent God, right? One last issue to wrap up with, uh, what philosophers call the meta-ethical, the moral argument. Um, Dawkins says, there's also the moral version of the God temptation. Well, that immediately makes a philosopher of religion think of this meta-ethical moral argument. This is what you'll find if you go to any introductory philosophy textbook or collection of introductory essays about arguments for God. This will be the kind of moral argument you come across. It goes something like this. It might say, premise one, if objective moral values, the kind of values that you discover rather than invent, the kind of values that exist independently of you, don't depend on you or your culture and so on. If that kind of objective, out there to be discovered, moral values do exist, then that would give you some reason to think that God exists. And we can go into why that is. Uh, premise two might say that objective moral values of that kind do exist. And of course you can see that if both of those premises are true, then the conclusion that therefore such a, a God exists must also be true, would follow. So it really is a logically valid argument. The conclusion follows from the premises. It all comes down to, you know, is there good reason to believe that both of those premises are more likely true than not? Well, think about what a, an objective moral fact would be if there were such a thing. It would be a moral ideal there's a sort of sense of intentionality about it. A sort of, this is the way things should be. 
Uh, it's an ideal that prescribes or, or commands our behaviour. It's not merely a description of how we do behave, it's an order to behave in a certain way, right? Uh, it's uh, an ideal prescription that obligates us, that, that would objectively mean that we really should follow it. But an intentional idea or character requires a mind, a person. A prescription or a command requires a prescriber, a commander. An obligation really requires someone to whom one is obligated because non-personal things like this table can't impose obligations on you. I'm not obligated to the table to behave in a certain way towards anything. I might be obligated by the owner of the table to treat it with respect. So here's Dawkins on what he describes as that moral temptation, the moral argument. He says, without God, it is said, though he doesn't really say by whom, where is the inducement to be good? What are the sanctions against bad behaviour? And Dawkins complains about basing moral decisions on the fear that our every move is being watched. Oh no! So we need to kind of suck it up uh, to an obsessively vigilant God, like God is Big Brother watching us through the, the CTV cameras all the time to make sure we behave. Uh, a God who's inexhaustibly interested in what goes on in our beds. But this, to me, just indicates that Dawkins is radically misinformed about the inner dynamics of Christian ethics. That, I can tell you from the inside, is just not how it feels to be a Christian. That's not what I'm thinking about when I think about Christian morality. This is, in other words, a red herring that doesn't address the argument that we looked at. You can see that this just doesn't address the issue. Or again, Dawkins says, you know, how do we even know what is good and what is bad? The temptation here is to abdicate the responsibility to think, which is, of course, what he thinks religious people are doing, abdicating our responsibility to think, to think about morality. Instead, to take the lazy route of just slavishly following an, an ancient book of rules, rules invented by fallible men, which is, of course, his presupposition about the text, but there you go. Again, this is another red herring. The meta-ethical moral argument, and I showed it to you, you can remember, isn't about explaining how we know what's good and bad. It's about explaining how come good and bad are objective realities that exist, given that you think there are good arguments for believing that. that things that exist to be known or not, however we come to know them or not. Again, Dawkins is just talking off-topic. It's a red herring. And of course, Paul, in his letter to the Romans, chapter 2, talks about the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who do not have the law. You know, the, the Old Testament scriptures that lay out God's rules for the Jews. When they do, by nature, things that are required by the law, they are a law for themselves. 
since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. And he goes on to talk about their consciences, sometimes condemning them for doing bad things and sometimes acquitting them for having done the right thing. He says, of course, those who don't have the law, those who don't have scripture, can know about what the right thing and the wrong thing is. Those who don't believe in God can know the difference between good and evil. That is the biblical position. Dawkins acts as if the opposite of the biblical position is true. He says, as for the suggestion that we can't define good and bad without God, it is falsified by the honourable and sophisticated discipline of moral philosophy. It's another red herring. It's off topic again. The meta-ethical moral argument indeed is part of the honourable and sophisticated discipline of moral philosophy. And it would be good if Dawkins were to educate himself a little bit in a Philosophy 101 course before sharing his ignorance of the field with everyone else. Indeed, think about this. Dawkins actually denies premise two of the moral argument. The real way he escapes that conclusion that there must be a God who obligates our behaviour is to say this, there is a non-overlapping, an exhaustive distinction between ideas that are false or true about the real world, about factual matters, and ideas about what we ought to do. Normative or moral ideas for which the words true and false have no meaning. He thinks to say that, so, that it is true or false that you should or should not behave in this way or that this is good or that that is bad has no meaning. And then he has the gall to say things like Hitler and Stalin were by any standard spectacularly evil men. Now I agree with that, but how can he say that in one breath whilst denying that there is any such thing as evil? in the other. How particularly can he then say that religious faith is an evil precisely because it requires no justification and brooks no argument? Not only is that again a radical misunderstanding of the Christian concept of faith at least and the Christian tradition of thinking about faith, but it is in direct contradiction to his own denial of the existence of such a thing as real objective evil. He says to talk about that stuff has no meaning. So despite rejecting the objective existence of moral values, Dawkins is constantly criticizing the evils of religion, thereby contradicting himself again. So here is a summary conclusion for you. Besides, you know, setting aside the fact that many of Dawkins' truth claims, many of his assertions in this context and in many others are false. Uh, for example, his misunderstanding of the nature of faith or his rule about when it's sensible to explain things or his denial of objective values, I would say. I think that's false. I, I actually agree with Dawkins that religious people, including Christians, have done and continue to do some very, very bad, evil things. Indeed, I think that I 
am evil. I am a sinner in biblical terms, standing here in need of the forgiveness and the transforming power of relationship with God. I need saving from myself, right, within the Christian worldview. Setting aside the truth or falsity of many of his claims, you can at least see against the you know, standard definitions that philosophers use to say, you know, that's a bad argument because it commits this fallacy, begging the question, equivocation, being a red herring, etc. Dawkins begs the question against miracles and thereby embraces a double standard. Dawkins follows Darwin in making an argument from ignorance. Dawkins' response to the organic design argument is an off-topic red herring. Dawkins' response to the fine-tuning argument is question-begging. Dawkins' argument against complex explanations is self-contradictory. Dawkins' equivocation between complexity of function and of structure, he equivocates there. Uh, Dawkins begs the question against God being a necessary being rather than a contingent being that could be complex in the statistical sense. Uh, Dawkins responds to the meta-ethical argument with a series of off-topic red herrings. And Dawkins' rejection of objective moral values contradicts his own ethical critique of religion. Here endeth the lesson. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for indulging me and letting me run uh, slightly over time. You may need to get off and go places. I'm happy to hang around here myself so you can come and ask me some questions if you have any. I don't want to shy away from questions, but officially we're over time, so I let you go. Thank <laughs> you.